So we have depraved inclinations, but we also have what I'm calling moral potential. We have this potential to behave in step with the morality that God has set up. So this idea of moral potential demonstrates that we can and do good things of our own free will, though our depraved inclinations often hinder, but do not incapacitate our attempts. And this week we are continuing Daniel and I's discussions on justification. This is episode number two of three. So in this episode, we go on to talk about Daniel's paper that he wrote on this, a new perspective, which is actually a very old perspective on justification. And so much of our discussion is around that, around terms that he is using. I don't know if he is going to be the first one to coin these, although I like them. Um, depraved inclination and moral potential. So we talk about justification in terms of how does this thing work? What does it mean? What's the difference between being sanctified, being justified, dipping our toes into uh, this ancient debate? And what does this mean for our life on earth and our actions rather than just our destinies in the future? What does it mean to be allied to have allegiance with Jesus in this sense. And so that's much of the discussion that we're going to have today. Um, As always, I hope that this is fruitful, encouraging, and challenging. Without further ado, let's get started. So in the thesis um, of my paper, I write, a Christian is justified by faith, not just as belief, but trust demonstrated by action. And so that's really been what we've been talking about here for a little bit. Trust demonstrated by action. If I say that I have faith, but it doesn't actually change the way I live in the world, it's worthless, I think. Now, this is contrary to, and as I said previously, this is a paper I wrote for my History of Christianity course. Um, We were covering the Reformation, so there's a lot of Reformation stuff in here. John Calvin states, there never existed any work of a godly man, which if examined by God's stern judgment would not deserve condemnation. So now how is this related to faith and trust and and all of that? Well, this is through the concept of justification, right? How is it that we are justified. I said we are justified through trust demonstrated by action, while Calvin states that there's no action, no work that a godly person can undergo that would not in and of itself deserve condemnation. No good action that can earn anything other than condemnation. 
here he is stating a typical um, theological perspective, which completely discounts the potential for human action, a view known as total depravity. To make this view cohere with the good actions of humans seen in the world, so what I mean by that is we see humans behave well in the world in ways that we would describe as good, right? And so if no human can, can will good action, Calvin asserts that all good actions, um, all good human action is willed not by the person doing it, but by God, thus removing true human agency from the picture. This is usually framed in terms of debt. Um, so you can't, pay, um, you can't pay back a bad deed for a good deed um, with, with a good deed and it undo the, uh, the consequences of the bad deed. Now, I don't necessarily disagree with that statement. I don't know, Luke, how you feel, but I, I think that you can't necessarily undo the damage of a bad deed done. Like broken trust is broken and it's very hard to build back, right? But I think he's committing a conflation here. Although no action on the part of a human can earn that person's salvation, this does not mean that every action of that person is reason for condemnation. Right. Just because someone behaves well or just because someone behaves poorly doesn't mean that they're, they've earned righteousness. And just because someone behaves well doesn't mean that that well behavior somehow makes up for. But also it doesn't it doesn't miss the mark. And so conflating these two things doesn't make any sense. Just because you can't earn your salvation doesn't mean you can't behave well. Also, so, we're going to take the view that <clears throat> he espouses in God being the impetus for every good action in human beings. What about all our bad actions? Yeah. This is where you get the bifurcation of the will by reformed Calvinists who will talk about our carnal natures. They'll talk about they'll talk about different availabilities of choice as far as our nature or actions are concerned. Um they overload the death metaphor of you being dead in your sin, your trespasses. Um, so, yeah, that's that's something else worth worth addressing. Is I I don't like Calvinism, if only because it makes if followed to its logical end, it makes. God, the author of evil things. And I don't like that God. I don't well, want to follow him. And I mean, Peterson has said multiple times, what if God didn't create evil? God created the possibility 
the potentiality for evil because that's different, right? To say that you have the ability to do something and we'll get into this in a little bit in my paper to say that you have the ability to do something is different than saying you have to or you will do something, right? And so God creating the potential for evil, giving us the ability to choose between one path or another is different than God creating evil. And it's definitely different than God willing evil. Right now, the Calvinist would say, no, the evil is this thing inside of us and God wills all the good in us, but we somehow like we have this thing in us that wills the bad. Okay. So that still represents a retraction of God's will. Mm -hmm. Right. And they say that in the end, God's will will encompass everything and only those things that um, or will encompass everything that gets saved. And to a degree, I agree, but I don't think that that, I don't think that holistically articulates the reality that we live in or the reality of the biblical witness, at least within the way they talk about um, the evil being something inside of us. I, I think they actually, if you're going to philosophically reason it out, they come to the same place I'm going to come to a little bit later in the paper, and which is super funny because I don't think they realized it. But anyway, I'll keep reading for a second. Um, so thus, it would seem that humans can will things for good reasons or will things which actually produce good. Instead of this view of total depravity, which leaves no room for the goodwill of humans apart from God, I think it is far more accurate to describe the human condition as being in a state of depraved inclination. And by this, I mean people greatly tend towards destructive, selfish, fear-motivated behaviors, but we are still capable of walking out of love of our own volition. Depraved inclinations. We are inclined to behave in poor ways. I think that's pretty self-evident in just looking at the world, and I think you could tell that from reading scripture as well. We're, to, we're inclined to behave that way also because of the state of the world in which we live, right? Just read the curses. Yeah. So instead of talking about depravity being the totality of our existence, I think it's far more accurate to talk about depravity as being the normative way we tend to operate in the world and how this, this way is influenced not just by our surroundings, as you brought up, but also in part the way we are. I think there is a part of the way we are that is that makes up this function. Well, because we realize very early in life that we're finite, that we yeah. are vulnerable, that yeah. we are 
destroyable. Yeah. That's but, not a light thing to deal with. No, it's not. So I think the solution to this, as I've proposed several times, I believe on here is Jesus commandment, the, the double love commandment, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Walking out of love becomes increasingly easier when we, and you guessed it, trust God, right? It's coming straight back to this. And so faith, faithfulness, trust, trustworthiness all becomes the central matrix because if we if we walk in this way, we truly have this thing, all of these other things become natural ways of being. Not in a moment, right? It's not a light switch. It doesn't switch on. It takes a lifetime, I think, to work these ways out of us. Or it can take a lifetime to further ingrain these ways within us, these sinful ways. The question is, are you going to choose actions that lead to life or actions that lead to death? And now I'm quoting Romans, the very thing that these, the Calvinists would quote to me and try and, to support their own position. So the question becomes, how does a human receive justification while existing in a state of depraved inclinations? <clears throat> We've talked about faith, right? Faith being this, this thing. And I think, Luke, you had a, a, um, a sentence or two that you mm -hmm. wanted to read from the, the paper. Right. I'll, I'll, I'll read the end of your paragraph preceding this. Okay. You say, <clears throat> perfection may not be the requirement, but it will never be completely achieved. Back to what you were just saying. And so grace is needed in an attempt to grasp the fulfillment of God's standards, for all have sinned. This does not mean people do not have free will, but that any action on the part of free will do not merit justification. Jesus' passion is the meritorious cause of salvation. What this does mean is that human agency is not removed from the equation and is still expected to act out of trust in God. So if we're going to say that there is human agency in the free will to choose, we have to say that that doesn't, that is not eradicated upon salvation, upon trusting Jesus. When the movement of the Holy Spirit is accepted by a person submitting their will to God, placing trust in God's love, justification happens. Submit to the rule of God, submitting their will to God. We must ascend to and cooperate with grace for justification to occur. As should be clear, this cooperation with grace should manifest itself in performing proper action and abstaining from improper action. Who shall ascend the mountain of God? If we neglect to turn away from evil and do good, so 
you quote Wesley here, but I don't like the way he structures a sentence. Yeah, it's a weird sentence. So I restructured it and used a few different words. But if we neglect to turn away from evil and do good, this should be the outcome. This is what justification means. I say both. There's two things happening. There's both a turning away and fruitful action, and they meet for repentance and are, in some sense, necessary for justification. So there is a there's a both and going on here. There is a turning away. There is repentance. There is submitting your will to God. There is trusting the reign of Jesus. And then because of that trust, because of that repentance, because of that submission, you turn away from the things that you repent. You turn away from what you used to do, and you have action that steps in a different direction. And this is what it means to be justified. Is that a correct summation of your argument here? Yeah, 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 oh, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> I, I, you know, I think that's, that's spot on. Um, I think that this, so to, to kind of expound upon that just a, a little bit, this salvation uh, means that we are to live differently, right? Then our depraved inclinations would produce. This leads to the development of, so Wesley goes on to talk about sanctification, right? The process of putting to, to death our sinful nature and becoming more alive in God. And I think that that's, that's key. That is key in this whole process. So um, I'm going to read the, the paragraph where I introduce the next key term of my paper. Um, so we have depraved inclinations and we have this next one. Um, and I use, I introduce it using an argument from Paul from the uh, second chapter of Romans. So Paul says, when Gentiles who do not possess the law do instinctively what the law requires, these, though not having the law, are a law to themselves. They show what the law requires is written on their hearts, to which their own conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts will accuse or perhaps excuse them, end quote. Here, Paul indicates that even people not exposed to the Torah and not even empowered by the Holy Spirit have a sense of right and wrong, and they can and indeed are expected to act accordingly. They will be accused or excused according to this behavior, right? So we have depraved inclinations, but we also have what I'm calling moral potential. We have this potential to behave in step with the morality that God has set up. So this idea of moral potential demonstrates that we can and do good things of our own free will, though our depraved inclinations often hinder, but do not incapacitate our attempts. So 
depraved inclinations. This is Lewis's argument for natural law. Yeah. Is what is part of, he's basing part of that on what Paul says in this Romans passage. Yeah. You know, it is self-evident to us. Yeah. It is written on our hearts. It is, while we are, to use your phrase, where we are inclined to depravity, to act in ways that are of pure self-interest or self-preservation, we have a sense that there is a different way in which to act and a better way to act, let's say. Yeah, we have moral potential. Mm -hmm. So our process of sanctification seems to start before our direct empowerment by the Holy Spirit. Thus, it is more, I think, more closely associated with the image of God in us. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that I think is, is key to understand, um, that, and I don't think it's, I don't think this is the thing that constitutes us being in the image of God, right? I think people who haven't, let's say, humans who haven't developed to the point where they have a full, fully fleshed out moral understanding, I think they're also in the image of God, but, or if humans who are past that, right, who um, have deteriorated past that point, but are still alive. That said, I think that a key component of, or a, a key reason why we have this moral potential is because we are in the image of God, if that makes sense. So now we have these, but, you know, when we become Christians, we're empowered with the Holy Spirit. And so we not just have the, the moral potential of the image of God, but we also have the warring sides of the spirit of God and the lusts of the flesh that are butting heads up against each other, right? This is what Paul is talking about in several passages. And so it becomes this push and pull of, you know, how do we, how do we pull these things apart? And walk in step with the spirit and put aside the lusts of the flesh. Anything to add? Not yet. Okay. Um, I know I said we would divert from the paper, but I actually think I want to continue at least a little bit further. Okay, go ahead. Um, <clears throat> So Calvin goes on to argue, um, and several others do too, I was using him as a test case, at least for part of this um, paper, but that we cannot earn the love of God through works. And I think that that's true. Um, but again, I think he's committing a conflation here. Just because God's love is not preconditioned on our behavior does not mean that we have chosen to be a part of God's kingdom. Because again, I think the choice is down to us. Are we going to live into our moral potential or are we going to behave in morally depraved ways? It might feel a lot more natural to us. But just because love is not credited to us because of our behavior doesn't mean that the behavior doesn't in some way 
fit into this whole complex of ideas, right? Again, he's, he's excusing one side without realizing that he's conflating two things. Anything to add there? So I think we should stop at this point, go back to the podcast for a second, and then we'll return to my paper in a little bit. What is the uh, topic in this timestamp for the podcast? So, so this timestamp. So we're, we're moving be... from moral potential. God's love is not condition on our action, but that doesn't mean that action doesn't follow our love for God, to put it another way. Yeah. So, so those, that's... that relationship being that relationship being reciprocal, right? You you open this up with ideas about trust, us trusting God's trustworthiness, God trusting us to be trustworthy. Um that's all tied up in what we just just explained. So where are we landing here? So here, um, this is rather a rather large timestamp, um, probably the longest of any of the ones we're going to cover. So they're going to cover several things, and I'll probably pause it occasionally. Um, first, they're going to talk about shifting definitions of the gospel. And that's going to be related to what we talked about earlier with meanings of words shift over time. They're at some point going to uh, mention a Roman inscription um, that uses the term gospel in a reference to a Roman emperor and how that informs the way we should think about gospel. Um, he's going to re reference John Piper a little bit um, and his, some of his disagreements with John Piper. And then this is the last thing. Um, and then we'll, this will tie back into my paper, um, realized versus potential forgiveness. And pay attention to that theme, because I think of this section, it's the most important. Ready? Any good Christian response is going to say, no, 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 that's not what we mean by faith. Right, right, for sure. Um, yeah, so this this leads us into, you know, the the content of the gospel, right? Um, so you say this on, on page 105, and, and in particular, you reference the um, pre-NA calendar inscription. I'm not sure if I'm, I'm saying that correctly, but part of it reads as follows. Surpassing all previous benefactors and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done. And since the birthday of the good, Tuthe, of the God, sorry, Tutheu, Augustus, was the beginning of the good tidings. So this is Evangelion. For the world that came by reason of him. So after this inscription, you Pause. specifically argue against John Piper's view of the word Evangelion. Uh, rewind that yeah. where he starts with the quote, because I have another quote for us here in just a second. I'm not sure if I'm I'm saying that correctly, but yeah, so this this leads us into, you know, the the content of the gospel, right? Um so you say this on, on page one oh five, and and in particular you reference the um pre-NA calendar inscription. I'm not sure if I'm, I'm saying that correctly, but part of it reads as follows. 
surpassing all previous benefactors and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done. And since the birthday of the good Tuthe, of the god, sorry, Tutheu, Augustus, was the beginning of the good tidings, so this is Evangelion, for the world that came by reason of him. Pause. So after this... So because this king was born, there is now good tidings, and this is good news. This is gospel. Luke chapter 2. I'll read 8 through 12, 8 through 14. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, and we all know this phrase, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. This is a euangelion. For you, for unto you, is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, Messiah. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly, this was with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly hosts. So they're all not angels, by the way. <laughs> Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. That's an interesting phrase. Well, and let's remember that. Good. Can you say that one more time? Which one? Which part? Uh, that last phrase that you read. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is pleased or with whom his favor rests is some other translations. So but, peace among those in whom his favor rests. Remember that because in a little bit in this next little section we're going to cover with them or at least the next few sections um they're going to talk about how in fact i think it's right because they're about to talk about john piper they're going to reference that just because it's considered good news evangelion does not mean it's good for everyone peace to those on whom his favor rests and that sounds a bit more calvinistic right he's um, unconditionally electing people pick and choose, pick and choose. And we're going to talk about why that's not the case in a little bit. But I think it's important to understand first that good news, when this word gospel is used, does not mean it's good news for everyone. Caesar rising to the throne meant very bad things for his political enemies. And very good things for his political friends. But it was good news for Caesar. Let's also take into consideration that this inscription that was just read referenced him as to Theu, of the God is how that literally translates. The God is born and good news is proclaimed. Where have we heard that before? It's exactly what Luke said. It's exactly yep. the message of the angel. Yep. The message of what? Something that has happened. 
I'm going to keep using this definition because it's such a good one. And we'll read Noob again at some point in a couple of weeks. And it's his definitions are very similar. Something that has happened because of which the world is a different place. Bring you good news. It's good tidings. Same phrase is used here in this inscription. Born today in the city of David. The Messiah. Born is Caesar. It's Augustus. Is the one of the gods. I mean... What are we talking about here? Could you be any more obvious? Honestly. Like, I think in their culture, this is flashing in big red lights. Big red lights. And like Daniel joked last week, not my president. Okay, fine. But like, <laughs> he's still in the Oval Office, man. Yeah. You know, I don't believe in Jesus. All right, fine. He's still on the throne. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying Donald Trump is Jesus. Not at all. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> Don't read it like that. All I'm saying is you can reject the news about something happening that doesn't change the fact that it happened. And these gospel writers, and Luke in particular, even in this phrase, even in how we're translating these phrases, is is flashing these big signs that say, no, 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 no. Just like Rob Bell, you think that Domitian is king. But John says, oh, I've seen it. I've seen the throne. I've seen the elders around the throne. I've seen what they chant and what the poets write. And it's not Domitian. His response is, I've got news for you, buddy. There's someone else on the throne. Let us, let us not forget. Ready? Description, mm -hmm. you specifically argue against John Piper's view of the word evangelion. Um, so can you explain more fully the significance of this inscription for how you understand the term in general? Yeah, so this would be, um, you know, if we were to look at the word euangelion in a number of different ancient contexts, right, we would see this is not an unusual usage, um, as it can refer to um, transitions that are large-scale transitions in empires, uh, and that um, it means glad tidings, right, in general, or good news. Um, and um, it's often found, it's, sometimes it's found in the singular form, form, sometimes in the plural, and people who have studied that have not been able to derive a lot of significance. Uh, it, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of differentiation uh, between um, the intended meaning there. Um, but uh, we see this kind of usage, um, you know, for Josephus when he refers to Vespasian becoming um, the new emperor, um, and we see him applying euangelian language. Here then in this particular inscription, um, 
it's the beginning of the of the good tidings, right? Now, obviously, this connects very closely to um, to the Gospel of Mark, right? Whenever we we find the opening line to the Gospel of Mark, you know, a beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, right? Um, and we have that language of the beginning of the good news. Um, so part of its significance, right, is that um, it does seem like our, our uh, the writers of our New Testament are using the word euangelion in a way that um, would have been familiar to insiders and outsiders alike, right? This was language that was available to them, and it would have been understood by themselves and by those um, who were outside of their community uh, to be a message of empire-wide significance. Um, so, yeah, did you want me to follow up on that, on, like, what's wrong with Piper's view? Yeah, yeah. So how was that different than, you know, Piper's view and the traditional understanding of, of this word? Yeah, so Piper's, Piper's view specifically argues that unless, um, unless the gospel includes personal, a message of personal forgiveness, then it couldn't be understood, possibly be understood as gospel. Um, that because gospel Pause. means good news, uh, gospel must mean good news. Rewind that, because I want... I want people to catch this. What's important yeah, to did you want me to what's important to Piper is that and he said this in in some sense in the video we played last week. <clears throat> if the what you declare as the gospel, the good news of Jesus, does not include personal forgiveness of sins, then it is not good news because it's not good news for everyone. Now, Piper is also a Calvinist. So, is he a double predestinarian? From what some of what he said, I think yes. So, I don't know. As you've explained in the beginning of this paper, even in your view, John Piper, uh, some are dedicated vessels of destruction. So what do we do with that in your own soteriology? Um, now, Piper would say something like, it's available to them, but God knowing that they will never choose it, which is, again, the observer outside of time, meaning that to correctly predict the future has to have this time also stand still or discrepancies will arise. Leto, God Emperor, all, all of this. So, but again, Piper in that response would be foregoing the free will of even good action or bad action in the life of the person and God being the, you know, puppeteer. Knowing yeah. that you will never choose, he is going to then just devote you to destruction, which is, uh, I mean, seems pretty pessimistic to me. Well, and on that, real, excuse me, real quick. I don't think that that passage in Romans is actually talking about, because if I'm not mistaken, that falls within, yeah, it falls within uh, Romans 
9 through 11. I believe it's 9. Um, which is an entire discourse where Paul is trying to wrestle with the rejection of Jesus by his own kinsmen, by the Jews. He, I think he uses the term Israelites in, throughout the passage. And so one thing that's interesting is he's actually referring to corporate salvation within that context, which is very fascinating because that's not how Piper wants to take it at all. And a lot of the references go back to um, the Exodus, both with Pharaoh, bless you, uh, both with Pharaoh and with um, God's mercy and God's wrath. I will have mercy on those whom I have mercy is one passage that Paul quotes. And what's super interesting, right, is we take that quote that Paul brings from the Old Testament, we say, see, God can choose who he has mercy on and who he doesn't. And we emphasize the doesn't. Yeah, and then he talks about Esau and Jacob. Yeah, he talks about Esau and Jacob, which again were corporate labels. He wasn't talking about the people because it's actually a quote from the prophets that was referencing them as nation states, not individuals. So again, we're all, it's all in the language of corporate corporate salvation and paul by the end right the the vessels devoted to destruction here are who they're either the gentiles that paul is claiming are being saved right now or the israelites who paul is claiming aren't but by the end of the discourse paul ends up saying that all israel will come to come to the saving knowledge of jesus christ and come to god Now, whether or not we want to take that seriously, how we want to deal with any potential anti-Semitism that branches from there, that's a whole other discussion. But the the point I'm making is what Piper and those who follow his theology tend to do is chop up this entire 9 through 11 section of Romans to make it about individual salvation, absent the context within the letter itself, and especially absent of the intertextual contexts that Paul is plugging into this passage. And so I didn't mean to get on this rant, but it um, obviously, I guess I'd had some pent up resentment about this, but it just, it genuinely bothers me when people use this passage to cite this whole thing, because depending on how you translate it, and I, I'm not fluent in Greek. I'm working on Greek. I can read decently well, but I'm still struggling with some verb structures. That disclaimer out the window. Reading this passage, it appears as though the vessels devoted for destruction, vessels devoted for life or whatever the term is that he uses there, It appears as though this is a hypothetical example to say God can do whatever God wants. So if God wants to have mercy on them, God can have mercy on them. You can't put God in a box. The emphasis for Paul is on mercy. We've made the emphasis on judgment. I do think judgment is real and will come, but I don't think we need to put the emphasis there if Paul didn't put the emphasis there. Do you need more time? Because I can keep rambling. 
I'll keep rambling. So the, the Pharaoh, um, the, the reference to Pharaoh, when it talks about um, him, God hardening Pharaoh's heart, that also is actually after Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Um, the Bible Project, one of their more recent um, episodes on the Exodus scroll, they talk about this. And they talk about how Pharaoh, um, Pharaoh hardens his own heart at least five times before God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And what God is doing is not condemning Pharaoh because um, absent of Pharaoh's own actions, God is speeding up Pharaoh's condemnation because Pharaoh's actions are naturally going to lead him there anyway. God's saying, okay, let's just go ahead and rip the bandaid off and get this over with. Um, and I think that's also an important understanding to have when it comes to the, the passage about Pharaoh in Egypt, um, because Pharaoh hardens his own heart a significant number of times. And that hardening ultimately leads to Pharaoh's own destruction. I'm not going to find it. I'm sorry, but that was good. No, you're good. <laughs> I, uh, so Newbegin has a chapter on, he has this uh, three-part uh, string of chapters where he talks about uh, history, looking at the Bible as universal history, um, relativism in our lenses of viewing history, um, how we want to demythologize history, um, and then Oh, what's the chapter I just read? Oh, the chapter I haven't read is Christ as the Clue to History, which is going to be interesting. Um, but he has a whole um, chapter on, he calls it the logic of election. And he basically makes the same, I was trying to find the specific paragraph, but I couldn't. He basically makes the same point about, if we're thinking of this in terms of purely individual salvation, here, let me actually then we're missing part of the point because this has to do with how God reveals himself to Abraham, the nation of Israel, to Jacob, to Esau, to... Yeah. Well, if you want to keep looking, I'll play this. I'll finish off this timestamp, and then if you found it by then, we can look into it. Ready? Um, here, I'll just... You know, it doesn't directly pertain, so I'll, I'll forego it. Just go ahead. Follow up on that on, like, what's wrong with Piper's view? Yeah, yeah. So how was that different than, you know, Piper's view and the traditional understanding of, of this word? Yeah, so Piper's, Piper's view specifically argues that unless, um, unless the gospel includes personal, a message of personal forgiveness, then it couldn't be understood, possibly be understood as gospel. Um, that because gospel means good news, uh, gospel must mean good news for you or me personally. Uh, so if I was to hear the message like, Jesus has become the king, okay? Like Piper's argument is like, that's actually a terrifying message for me if I'm a sinner. And I hear there's this new king in town and this new king will bring in time's judgment. And I'm like, have I'm on the wrong side of that. I haven't received personal forgiveness. Uh, well, then I'm just condemned. Uh, that would be Piper's argument. Um, the problem with Piper's argument is that it's it's based on, I, I think, ultimately a root fallacy argument, like that the word euangelion, like because we can split it apart into its roots, you, which means good or beneficial, and angelion, which means message, 
you know, that we can therefore determine that it must mean like, oh, it must literally mean a good message for each individual or else it, it's not applicable. Like the problem is he's he's confused individual and corporate categories, right? That like yeah. the, the term euangelion was a term that meant good news for the emperor, regardless of whether it meant good news for any single person, right? Like whenever like Josephus talks about the good news of Vespasian becoming the emperor, everybody would have recognized like that that Vespasian had enemies and it would mean their personal downfall. And it, he also had people who had kissed up to him effectively and would receive benefits, right? Um, and that there would be a, an upheaval personally for a lot of people. Some people would benefit, some people would, would, would go down in shame, right? Um, and, and yet they still refer to the term euangelion. No one is like, you know, when Josephus is using the word, no one's going like, um, you know, actually the news that Vespasian has become emperor, like you can't use the word euangelion there because uh, you you see, like Vespasian has this this enemy, and it's going to mean his personal downfall. So it's not good news for him. Like nobody was making those kind of arguments. So it's like it's a that kind of um, use of language that Piper's suggesting is just incomprehensible within the first person. Uh, excuse me, for, from within the world of the first century. So real quick, we have a little bit more with this section, but I wanted to say two things. One, I love his his mocking voice. Um, you can't actually say that this is good news because Vespasian's enemies are going to um, suffer a lot because it, it just, it reveals the, the narrow way in which this defines the use of the word and then the narrow way in which we then try to use the word in regards to what Jesus accomplishes. Um, <clears throat> so I think that it's just, it's really important to understand that. I also want to say that I do believe that part of the gospel is that we do get individual personal salvation, that we are saved. That's part of what I believe, but I don't think a lot of the, the texts that are usually used to cite this are in reference to that. I think one of the things that Paul is doing in Romans is trying to wrestle with between tensions that exist between communities he's ministering to, not individuals, that those communities are made up of individuals. Those individuals are presumably, hopefully saved and will end up, whatever your version of eschatology is, will end up in the eschatological kingdom. But when Paul is talking about this specifically in Romans, because Paul's a community organizer, right? He's a pastor. He's a traveling missionary setting up churches. He's using theology, but I think we oftentimes read him as emphasizing theology, whereas I think his emphasis was actually producing healthy community. And that's a really key distinction, I think, when it comes to reading Paul. So those two things, um, I think, were important to highlight. We can keep going unless you want to stop and read. No, I'm, I just got to accept the fact I'm not going to find it. Okay. Well, at some point, we need to come back to New Begin anyway. So, For sure. Um, well, and it's interesting, even if you, um, I mean, I think this, this distinction between the individualistic and the corporate is, is so crucial too. I mean, even if you think about 
you know, even if you break up the word and say good news, right? And it always has to be good. I mean, the, the things that we call good are highly, highly subjective based on our own personal, you know, under, like understanding of what is good and, and bad. And, and that may or may not, you know, line up with what is good Pause. for someone in particular, you know. What have we been seeing argued about for the last week? Uh, in the wake of Roe v. Wade being overturned. Supreme, Supreme Court, Court decisions, yeah. Is it good news? Depends on what you think that decision means or the, what you see as the motivations of that decision. Depends on what you think of uh, what you think of womanhood. It depends on what you think of how to define life. Um, it depends on what you think of quote unquote reproductive rights are, uh, which such that phrase in and of itself is so interesting, but anyway, I digress. Um, <laughs> yeah, but it's good news. Maybe, depending on your position. But again, it is something that has happened because of which our country is going to be, at least slightly, a different place. Just, again, why would we expect it to be any other way? (laughs) It is... What happens? It is the nature of events. Go. Yeah. What well, salvation buys, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's really helpful. Um, Let me piggyback that just really quickly. Like one thing Piper does get right is part of his assistant insistence, right, is that the gospel includes the forgiveness of sins, and this is partly because of First Corinthians fifteen three through five. Right, where it talks about the Christ, you know, dying for our sins in accordance with the scripture. Uh, and so he gets that, right? Like that has to be part of the gospel. But notice, like it's the Christ dying for our corporate sin, right? It's not a, like about individualized forgiveness. And that's where he goes astray. So I think he wants to hold on to that sensibility that somehow it must mean forgiveness is coming. And he's right. But it means that forgiveness is universally available. And I think that's where he goes astray. Like, the, the right idea would be to say, like, the good news is that is that forgiveness is available to all. Like, the mistake he makes is saying that it has to be actualized by each individual, or it doesn't count. Or that it has to be received forgiveness by each individual. It's good enough news that it's actually available forgiveness for everyone. That's the good news. So, so... So, that's... Um, we'll keep going with them in a little bit, but I think that's a crucial point. Um, that'll kind of lead into another point in my paper um, that just because it's not realized or actualized does not mean that the potential for forgiveness isn't good news. And I think part of the reason Piper gets caught on this and a lot of Calvinists do is because they don't think that it's available to everyone, right? They have this unconditional election hang up. God's Picking and choosing because of God's omnipotence and because of 
like all of these other things working in the background, which I do believe in. But I think they let those things take them to a point that is, it doesn't produce good things. And I don't think it's biblically consistent. Do you have anything to say on that bifurcation of potential versus realized forgiveness? Well, I would say it's just the way life is, right? You, we all are, have the potential to do something, well, whether we do it or not is another question. But you could say, this goes back to, we had a conversation pre-show about the inevitability of hierarchy. And I would say, uh, to use a Peterson phrase that I've thought about ever since I first heard him say it, you're sacrificial whether you want to be or not. We all choose to submit to something. So you can do, well, not anything you want, but there's a lot of options out there. There's a lot of potential, but you have to decide what you're going to do or forces outside of your control will decide for you. Um, to phrase it another way, there's an opportunity cost to everything that you do. Mm -hmm. Making one decision, making a decision uh -huh. to do something is making a decision to not do something else. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the gospel, in terms of Jesus life, death, resurrection, something that has happened that makes the world a different place. Well, you can decide whether, like the question I've been asking myself, do I really believe this? Am I going to live as if this is a reality? Or am I going to not actualize that potential? Am I not going to lean into that? Am I not going to be faithful to that reality? Right. Um, I think this is what's going on here. You, you can be forgiven. That is available through the, through the blood of Jesus. That is available through, through the cross and through the resurrection. Death is defeated. Right. What does Paul say? All enemies are subjected to him. The last enemy to be defeated is death. So it's real. It's there. The offer is on the table. The only question is, what are you going to do about it? Yeah. So it is, again, it's potential, but it's not actualized. You could go get the job. You could propose. You could start the company. You could make the podcast. You could write the thesis, you know, make the book paint the picture it's there you know depending on your situation and all the things i just listed but are you is it just going to stay potential or are you going to actualize it 
it's it's the way the world lays itself out so again why would it be any different yeah so um returning to the paper um I believe it is the Council of Trent that talks about how God does not command impossibilities. God doesn't require of us anything that we can't actually do ourselves. And I think I was going to brush by that fact, but after just having said it, I think it's actually important to sit with that a second. Because so often, I think we have this, this feeling in the church that God has commanded or has set up these rules or laws or things to do, ways to be or ways not to be, that are these standards, I'll just put it that way, that are impossible to meet. And that Jesus was the way of bridging where we are to those impossible standards. But I genuinely, genuinely think that God presents us with actions that lead to life or actions that lead to death. And we are fully capable of living in either of those realities. And again, we've got the depraved inclinations and the moral potential, and we can choose which one of those paths we're going to take. But I don't think God's commands are to be taken as impossible to do. That does not mean that empowerment through the Holy Spirit can't take place. God can come, and that's part of the radical claim of Christianity, not just that God was incarnate and lived among us, but that God's spirit can dwell within us and empower us to behave in step with his way of life. Now, empowerment, and this is another thing that I think a lot of people get wrong is they see, okay, God's empowering us. Therefore we are like in some way coerced or compelled by him to behave and live in this certain way. And I don't think that that's true. Empowerment is different than coercion or compelment. Just because you're empowered to act within a certain way, just because you have the ability to act in a certain way, doesn't mean you will, you still have the choice. Like you just said, whether you will write the thesis, make the podcast, paint the painting, write the book, whatever. You might have the ability. Doesn't mean you'll actually act upon that. And I think that's an important, an important thing to realize. Because empowerment via the Holy Spirit does not mean, just because God's power dwells within us, does not mean we actualize it in the world and doesn't mean that he has to force us to actualize it in the world. As always, thank you guys very much for listening to that episode. That was part two of our conversation on justification. Next week, we will have the final part of this discussion. If you want to get in touch with us, you can always email me at belfastpodcast.gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at the Belfast Podcast. You can DM Daniel there. As I've been saying, the link, if you haven't already given or if you want to give a little bit more, the link 
for the GoFundMe is going to be in the description. This is to help fund my trip to Oxford, England at the end of the summer. And any gift over $5, just anything over 5 bucks, will get you access to content I'm going to create as a consequence of the trip. I think everybody who's given so far is well over that. And I appreciate you very, very, very much. You are making this possible. And so if it's still up, if you would like to give, if you're financially able, please do there. And as always, I hope this is challenging. I hope that what we're talking about here is edifying and is um, good for your soul. So we'll see you next week with the last part of our discussion on justification.